I would have never guessed from the the first line there. I thought it was really convincing. (laughs) That's basically what it sounds like. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 19, which is the last chapter of the autumn yeah. section of this book. Autumn went fast. Yes, it did. <laughs> and it is from Vivacious point of view for the whole chapter. No, it ends in... Oh, for uh, all of the Paragon. chapter. Yeah, all the chapter except for four pages. Or so. Less than four, but yeah. <laughs> being generous well, that's nice of you well we start with Vivacia here we're back on board they have left Cress. it has been a while and we kind of do the same thing that robin hobb does repeatedly throughout this book with time skips so we jump into a story but think about the past right. and recontextualize what happened in the past with what's happening now and i do want to say that this is my favorite moment in at least this book from memory before reading it, at least. I mean, even now, I still really like it. I think the overall things that happen are really interesting, but I just going remember- Going into the book, you mean? Yeah, going into the book. I remember being excited about this specific instance because I think it's so interesting to Wintrow's character. Yeah, for sure. And we get a really good insight into who he is because Vivacia can see his feelings. Yeah. No, and I think this I think this is when my first time through I started liking Wintro a little bit. Cuz before then he was kind of just a whiny baby. Like he had some good points every once in a while, but I think this is when I was like Yeah. I felt more sympathy than <laughs> distaste. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah. So he is with Vivacia on the foredeck right now. They're having their forced time together to bond. Right. <laughs> and she is thinking that, you know, she's fighting a rising tide of grief and despair, saying it was not getting any better between Rintro and her. Since Cress, with every passing day, his resentment of her increased. It made what might have been pleasant days into torture. And she's kind of thinking back to the events on Cress and not never being explicitly told what had happened, but picking right. it up from, you know, men's talk throughout the ship because she can, she knows what's going on. And uh, the way that she understands it is that she knew that Wintrow still believed his decision had been correct. And she knew with the wisdom of her stored memories that his grandfather would have agreed with him. But all it took to make him miserable was for him to know that the rest of the crew considered him a coward and that his father seemed to concur with their opinion. And that was all it took for her to feel a misery as deep. That is a good reminder. They do see, they do share the same pains and joys. They, they are very linked together. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it gives a good insight to how live ships work in general. It seems that the blood relation has some sort of tie and that helps with the temperament of the ship. And I think what's unfortunate is that the only tie available to Vivacia is Wintrow, who does not want the tie at all. And so it's really interesting, especially reading from Vivacia's point of view, kind of the negative side effects to that, where she knows that like on the outside, it's not really her fault, but on the inside, it's the only person that she can connect with and they are rejecting her. Yeah. And it's not like humans where Wintrow can reject Vivacia and still find companionship with other people. Vivacia doesn't seem to be able to have that with others. I don't think that means that she can't be friends with other humans, but it definitely seems like there's this undercurrent of there's something she needs from Wintrow and him not being willing in that bond is really painful and hard to deal with. Yeah, definitely. But since the crew are so at odds with Wintrow, they're also feeling a little at odds with her. Like, it's just they kind of come as a package pair and it's just right. doubly isolated <laughs> from right. everything. So Vivacia is thinking back on this event. Like, this kind of spurred everything, but he still sticks by his decision and so would Efren. Like, that was the correct decision based on her wisdom. And the way that he is going about his belief still and the way that he's still persevering and not giving up does bring up his esteem in Vivacia's eyes as well. It spoke greatly of the spirit inside him. Shunned by his shipmates, consigned to a life he could not relish, he still continued to work hard and learned. He was now as capable as any ship's boy and was moving rapidly to master the tasks of an able deckhand. He applied his mind as well as his body, comparing how his father managed the sails to the commands that Gantry issued. Some of his eagerness was simply the starvation of a mind accustomed to learning opportunities and bereft of his learning from the monastery. He kind of soaks up all of the knowledge that he can at sea because what else is there to do? (laughs) And instead of just the menial labor that he was used to in the monastery, his body is now used to the sailor's work. Right. And not only that, but... He could just do the job and at bare minimum level, he could learn how to do it enough to pass by and be fine. But Wintrow is mastering them and trying to do them well. He is going out of his way to be good at the things. And it's not, and it's partially because he thinks that if you're going to do a task, you should do it well, that that is kind of a purpose in life is that when you've been given something, that means that that is the task that you must do. And that's very vestrid of him. <laughs> yeah. That it should be done well. Just because it's menial doesn't make it any less important, mm-hmm. which I do think is a really good worth work ethic to have, especially at what he's 15, 13. 14. Yes, <laughs> 13. And he's 13, maybe 14. Yeah. And so, and he's already thinking stuff like, you know, like just be, you're expected to do this thing, you might as well do it well. Right. But she does say that there is an undercurrent of another reason why he's trying to master seamanship. And it's because he's trying to show the crew in mastering everything that he was not fearful 
or looking down on their jobs as sea people whenever he refused to fight the bear. Mm-hmm. That it's nothing to do with fear or cowardice or looking down on them. It's all to do with it being a bad idea. Which is the main sentiment now against him that he was a coward, right? He He's the one who's like, no, 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 I can't wrestle this bear. I won't do it. And everyone's like, no, you're a coward for not doing it. And you are the reason that Mild got hurt. Right. So now with his, as Vivacia puts it, the Vestrid in him kept his neck stiff while he takes the, and his head up, despite the scorn of Torg and his fellows. So obviously Torg has been loving the past few weeks because right. everyone is shunning Wintro and he needs a, a victim for his bullying. Right. But he's, Wintro is going to keep his head up because that is his work ethic, that is his spirit, that is the vested in him, according to Vivacia, to not apologize for that decision. He did not feel he had done wrong, but that did not keep him from smarting under the crew's contempt for him. Right. And I do want to say, not to praise of Haven, but that's kind of a Haven trait too, not to apologize. Oh, yeah, sure. To be fair, with Kyle not apologizing, he's actually making really horrible decisions and doing things wrong. But in the crew's eyes, Wintro has also done something wrong and he's refusing to apologize for it. So yeah. I will say it is Haven. It's a Haven trait to think because you're in the right, you do not need to apologize. It's also a very... Vestra thing with True. Althea. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but I do want to say. But also, yeah, like, Malta for, as well. You yeah. Know. For Havens, to a Haven's credit, <laughs> they also have this stubbornness in them, <laughs> good or bad, I guess. Um, but we should say that the start of this is Wintro being hurt. There is, yes. When there has been an incident, which we are working our way back to, that Wintro got hurt on the job and he yep. is in this moment cradling a hurt hand yes this was a a few days ago he got injured maybe three or four something like that three days yeah three days and vivacia is thinking and reflecting on all of the attitudes and how he was willing to put himself into his work up until that accident up until that point she did not need to look at him to know that he too stared towards a distant horizon the small islands that they were passing held no interest to him on a day like this, Althea would have leaned on a railing, eyes avid. It had rained heavily yesterday, and the many small streams of the islands were full and rushing. She describes this like beautiful, like they're sailing past all these islands, it's wonderful, but he is only focused on his crushed hand. Wintrow had thoughts only for a more distant harbor far to the south, which we know is Marrow, his uh, monastery's harbor, one that they're not going to stop at. And just focused on his hand, just trying to be completely alone with his thoughts. At the beginning of this chapter, he he even kind of retorted back in a snarky way at Vivacious question about the injury as well. And so he's just been sitting here silently since that. Right. I should also mention that Vivacia has talked about how it's basically winter and it's kind of nice to be in this area because right. while it may be winter, they're never going to know snow in this area. It's just too warm. But that joy has been taken away because Wintrow is so miserable. <laughs> she can't even enjoy the good weather and the beautiful scenery. Yeah. And Wintrow is sitting here and she says that he is past weeping because... They know that both Vivacia and him 
both know that he can't show any weakness right now. You can't show any weakness at all because of the harsh mockery that's going to be called forth from Torg. And so they were both denied even that vent from the wretchedness that coiled inside him and threatened to tear him apart. After a time, he took a deep breath and opened his eyes. He stared down at his hand, loosely fisted in his lap. It had been three days since the accident. Oh, there's the three days. Mm -hmm. A stupid mishap, as almost all such are, in hindsight, of the commoner sort aboard a ship. Someone had released a line before Wintrow expected it. Vivacia did not believe it had been deliberate. Surely the crew's feelings against him did not run that high. Only an accident. The twisting of the hemp line had drawn Wintrow's gripping hand with it, ramming his fingers into a pulley block. Anger bubbled deep within Vivacia as she recalled Torg's words to the boy as he lay curled on the deck, his bleeding hand clasped to his chest. Serves you right for not paying attention, you gutless little plunger. plugger. You're just stupid lucky that it was only a finger and not your whole hand smashed. Pick yourself up and get back to your work. No one here is going to wipe your nose and dry your little eyes for you. And then he had walked away, leaving Mild to come wordless with guilt, with his almost clean kerchief to bind Wintrow's finger to the rest of his hand. Mild, whose hands had slipped on the line that Wintrow had been gripping. Mild, whose cracked ribs were still wrapped in healing. And Wintrow then apologizes to Vivacia for snapping at her earlier. So do you think this was an accident? Yes, I do. I do think this was an accident. I feel like Vivacia is really, really hoping it was an accident and she's pretty naive or like new into the world where she can't really fully tell. But with Mild being the one that slipped, I really do believe it. Plus he's broken ribs <laughs> trying to hold up a line. I think it was an accident. Interesting. I think it's possible that Mild did it on purpose, not knowing how much damage it was going to do. Maybe. And then feels bad that it hurt him more than it meant to. Like he just meant for, in my mind, he just meant for Wintrow to get in a little bit of trouble or to maybe get hurt a little bit, but not like bleeding on the ground, holding your hand in pain. That's true. That could definitely, yeah, that could definitely be a thing too. But I don't know. Maybe little, there was no malice at all. A little I, revenge. Yeah. I'm just a little bit more skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially, I, I can definitely see it, especially with Vivacia being like, surely the crew's feelings against him did not run that high, only an accident, kind of trying to convince right. herself. I, I can see that that angle as well. Right. And I mean, especially because it was, it was Mild. Mild was the one who got hurt the most out of the incident, and he looked the dumbest, <laughs> kind of, for going, even when he shouldn't have. And he's still recovering, like, three weeks later. So I could see some resentment built uh, that would build up from that. True. But we don't know, and we're back to the present because Wintrow, like you said, is apologizing to Vivacia. He acknowledges that he's not actually mad at her. He's just really upset about the situation that they're in or that yes. he's in, I guess. It's just being here when I wish I were somewhere else, knowing that if you were any other ship, save a live ship, my father would not force me to be here. It makes me blame you, even though you have no control over what you are. I know, Vivacia replied listlessly. She did not know which was worse, when he spoke to her or when he was silent. Which, yeah, that, he's offering up a sincere apology, 
but coupled on the facts of like other things he's said to her, plus the sentiment of like, I'm really wishing you just weren't aware of anything and then I could be away. Right. I wish <laughs> you were just, literally anything else. <laughs> it's a very young person's apology. apology of, yeah. Not wording things well. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was only thinking of what's best for me and not really how it hurt you. Even though you're the only one who can really understand me right now, I didn't mean to hurt you. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's not taken super well. And on Vivacious credit, at least she's not really taking it out on him, which I think is huge because Vivacious is basically a child herself and she is kind of containing any sort of disappointment she has to herself. I mean, there's a potential that Wintrow knows of it because they can share conscience consciousness in a way that we're not really aware of. But for the most part, I think she does a really good job of just trying to be there for Wintrow whenever he needs it. And he isn't really trying to be there for her. So maybe he doesn't know. Right. And later on in this chapter, they do say, like, this is the first time I can feel things through you. So I don't think he's trying to reach for that connection either. Right. So I think it, right now it's just kind of one-sided with Vivacia trying to play the adult as a <laughs> few-month-old ship. Right. And she is kind of wondering why, like, this is this is her frustration coming through and how frustrated she is. She could not say why Kyle forced him into proximity with her. Did he hope some bond would miraculously develop? Surely he could not be so stupid. At least he could, be, he could not be so stupid as to suppose he could force the boy to love her. Being what she was, and he being who he was, she had no choice but to feel a bond with him. She thought back to the high summer evening that now seemed so long ago, that first night he had spent aboard her, and how they had begun together. If only that had been allowed to grow naturally. But there was no sense in pining for that. So she's kind of like given it up, basically. It's like, yes, I'm forced to have a bond with this young Vestret. But he doesn't want me. He's not going to love me. I just want Althea back. But no use thinking about her, I guess. I think, this is what I have. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this section is that you can really see how much Wintrow is influencing her. Yeah. Because how Wintrow is it to to say, I can't dwell on the things I cannot change, which is basically that she's acknowledging what she's upset about. She's thinking about it like, listen, it's the worst that I have to deal with Wintrow hating me and being forced into this alone time where he doesn't want to be. And I wish it was Althea instead, because at least then I'd have somebody who liked me, but there's no point in pining after it because that will not happen. You can't change the past. We just have to deal with what we have right now. And I think that's, I think that's a really, really cool way for Robin Hobb to write in a subtle change to Vivacia, a subtle, right. a subtle Wintroism that Vivacia is without even realizing doing. But at the same time, that kind of goes both ways with good and bad because she is so incredibly lonely and pining for something, a deeper connection with somebody, which right. just primes her for Kenneth to come along and try to woo her, right? Exactly, yeah. With Wintro constantly wanting to be away, to have a different life, to not be have this connection, to desire something better that he remembers in his life. It's setting it up for Vivacia being like, I am desiring that deep connection I had with Althea, but I can never go back to. So when Kenneth comes along, it's like, 
Got the best of both worlds right here. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. And she is kind of remarking once again on the beautiful day it is sailing through this, how it should be some of the happiest times sailing through. And that's why her sadness pierces her so keenly because she's dwelling on all of their interactions recently and her relationship with Wintrow. And there was a few things that the boy had said to her over the past few days, words he had spoken in anger and frustration and misery. A part of her recognized such words for what they were. Wintrow railed against his fate, not her. Yet she could not seem to let go of them, and they cut her like hooks whenever she allowed herself to think of them. He had reviled her yesterday morning after a particularly bad night's watch, telling her that Sa had no part in her being, and she partook nothing of his divine force, but was only a simulacrum of life and spirit, created by men for the serving of their own greed." The words had shocked and horrified her, but even worse was when Kyle had strode up from behind the boy and knocked him flat to the deck in fury that he would so goad her. Even the kinder men among the crew had spoken ill of Wintrow after that, saying the boy was sure to curse their luck with his evil words. Kyle had seemed ignorant that she would feel the blow he had struck Wintrow as keenly as the boy himself had. Nor had he paused to think that perhaps that was not the way to help Wintrow develop kindly feelings toward her. Instead, Kyle ordered the lad below to the extra chores he hated most. She was left alone to mull over the boy's poisonous words and wonder if they were not, after all, absolutely true. Yeah, this is a little rough. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, it's, this is the only person he can like talk to right now. And right. he was already on the fence about whether she was a being of Sa or not. And... All of his frustrations are just kind of like leaking out yeah. and being forced on her. There's this really interesting thing that I've heard said, and I don't know how true it is because I just heard it from a random person who is not a professional in mental health in any way. But they, I've heard it said that you tend to lash out on the people that you are most comfortable with and people that you know will not leave your side. And that like there's, it's a human habit that like, there are safe people to lash out against and not safe people to lash out against. It can be really unhealthy, but sometimes people fall into this habit of like, well, I know they're not going to leave me and they're still going to be on my side. So I can lash out and take my anger out on them, which isn't great and should not be something that you actively seek to do. But it made me think of that whenever I was reading this, that I think Wintro knows that Vivacia is in his corner and she cares about him. And it's much easier to yell at her, someone who cares about him and is on his side than it is to say anything to these crew who can make his life so much worse. And in a way he's kind of turning into the sailors that he so despises <laughs> right? <laughs> by taking somebody who is below him in a sense and taking out his anger on her instead of internally working through that. But, you know, he's 13, he's at his breaking point, and it's just unfortunate that Vivacia isn't a mature ship who can handle the right. lashing out. Yeah, because she's very impressionable right now, and she remarks on that, that Wintrow makes her think. He thinks about things that no other Vestrid in her memories have thought of, like the inherent goodness of men and the honor that comes along with that. And that's why those words cut all the more deeply because she knows 
he kind of means that and what the, those words mean to him to say out loud. Right. Because he thinks of very different things than other sailors do. Right. And I do think it is really interesting that he is saying that, like, in his anger, he's decided that she is not of saw, that there is, it's just men's greed that has made her. And I think that's really interesting because it's partially correct, right? Mostly correct. Yeah. Like, the only reason live ships exist is because a group of men found something that they could create into a very profitable thing. Or at least a substance that would not dissolve in the Rainwild River and then turned it into a profitable right. thing. Right. So it's like, it it's not wrong. This isn't a natural creation. Right. This is something man created for personal gain. And so in that way, I mean, he's kind of not wrong. Right. But like, also, I guess then it goes to a more philosophical point of, at what point does that matter whenever the being itself has some sort of autonomy, then doesn't that make it Saw's creation anyway? Um, or are humans able to create life the same way Saw are? It, Saw is, you know? I don't yeah. know. It's a very weird <laughs> philosophical rabbit hole I could definitely go down, but I won't make us go down that hole. Um, but I just thought I'd bring it up a little bit, touch on it. Yeah. But what's really interesting about this is Vivacia thinking about how much Wintrow makes her think. And she thinks about in relation to the other Vestrits, the other Vestrits, sure they believed in Saw, but sort of as like a cursory, like, yeah, he probably exists out there somewhere. And sometimes they'd say a prayer to him, but Wintrow really believes it. It's part of the core of who he is. And he believes that every being had some special destiny to fulfill, that there was some need in the world that only life lived correctly could satisfy. And so because that's something he believes that the other Vestrits didn't, Wintrow's the only one who has been so bitterly disappointed because of his everyday dealings with people who aren't living life correctly, quote unquote. And I think that's really interesting but it also made me think of the whites and how they believe, or at least in some point, at least the fool believes that every life has the possibility to go down a good path it's, and make changes. Yeah. And so then I was wondering, so this is, here's a tinfoil hat theory. Oh, okay. Hadn't had one in a while. Sorry. What if saw was one of the first original whites Hmm. And interesting. Taught the philosophy of every living being is important because every living being changes destiny. And if you think about it, here's okay, here's where it gets a little bit dicey, but why I think it could be potential. Saw is a something is something or a being that changes faces. Right. And what do whites do whenever they correctly move the path in the direction it's supposed to go. That's a little bit more of a stretch. They change faces <laughs> by changing completely different color. All I'm saying. <laughs> I, I would be more apt to say, like if we're following your tin, tin hat or tinfoil hat theory about this is that the whites agreed to this philosophy and went out to preach it. 
And each of these locations or places that they went to had like, oh, yeah, we had a very pale person come and teach these things. And they were different looking people because they were different. Right. And then they kind of all those civilizations kind of came together after the whites went away and be like, oh, this was Sa. This was like one person who visited all of us and different faces. Okay. I like that, too. I I I would be more apt to say that than because they grow darker. Okay. Well, I'm just saying it does change the face. That's an interesting theory. I but, It's hard to say because we don't get a lot of history on how old Saw is. We hear Ida and Elle mm-hmm. a lot about like the ancient people worshipped Ida and Elle, you know? Right. Like, yeah. We don't get a lot about Saw. I don't think there might be some in like later books. Right. When they go to Jamalia or something, or I don't know. I don't know, but I, I think, I don't know. Part of me is just, especially with these books, because there is this like underlying theme of religion. I am so intrigued by what created it because I think in human, like in real life, um, we have real historical figures that stories are religious stories are based off of. Right. And like, sometimes those are exaggerated. Sometimes they're not whatever. I think, so I think it's really interesting to try to find that commonality in these worlds of like, is there a possibility that this was something outside of the scope of what people at the time knew? And so they now believe that's a God. And I don't, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Could be. It, Maybe maybe Saw is real and Ida and Elle are real and they're all gods, but maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe there's no Ida and Elle, it's all Saw. Saw's, <laughs> all both. Saw's difference. No, because I still am pretty adamant that Ida and Elle are that elderling and dragon, but that is just me. Mm. But anyway, so that was, I just wanted to <laughs> take us off the path for a moment because when I read that line of like, Every living being, when lived correctly, can make a difference in the world. I'm like, interesting. I think I've heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) So this is all of Vivacia's reflections as they're sitting there quietly watching these islands go past them. And she's staying silent because she's tried to start conversations with Wintrow and he doesn't really want to talk and he has not started a conversation in a very long time, but he does chime in and pipe up and say, I think they're going to have to cut my finger off. He spoke hesitantly and softly as if his voicing of the fear might make it a reality. Vivesha held her tongue. It was the first time since the accident that he had initiated a conversation. She suddenly recognized the deep fear he had been hiding behind his harsh words to her. She would listen and let him share with her whatever he could. And so he goes on describing, like, I think it's more than broken. It, I think the joint is crushed and they're going to have to cut this out before it is fully infecting my hand and they'll have to cut off my hand. He says, I think I've known since it happened. Still, I kept hoping. So stupid. I've cared for others' injuries before, not as a healer, but I know how to clean a wound and change a dressing. But this, my own hand... I haven't been able to muster the courage to look at it since last night. He paused, and she heard him swallow. Isn't it odd? He went in a higher, strained voice. And he relates this anecdote of being there when a 
man had to get his leg amputated. And the man kept telling all of the priests, just, just wait a little bit longer. Like maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll be fine. And everyone around him, Wintrow was saying, knew that they had to do it. But the priest waited because he was the man's wishes. But they all knew it had to happen. It wasn't going to get better. And Wintrow didn't understand that until it happened with his own hand. He says, why cling to a rotting hunk of flesh and bone? Simply because it used to be a useful part of your body. He curled forward over his hand again, and now she could sense the throbbing of his pain, the beat, beat, beat in his hand that echoed every pulse in his body's heart. Did I ever really look at my hands before? Really think about them? A priest's hands. One always hears about a priest's hands. All my life, I had perfect hands. Ten fingers, all working and nimble. I used to create stained glass windows. Did you know that, Vivacia? I used to sit and plunge myself so deeply into my work. My hands would move of their own accord, it almost seemed. And now... He fell silent again. Vivacia dared to speak. A lot of sailors lose fingers, or whole limbs. Yet those sailors still... I'm not a sailor. I'm a priest. I was to be a priest! Until my father condemned me to this. He's destroying me. He deliberately seeks to destroy me. He and his men make mock of my belief when I try to hold to my ideals. They use them against me. I cannot withstand what he is doing to me. What they are all doing to me. They are destroying. Yet those sailors still remain who they are, lost limbs or not. Vivacia continued. You are not a finger, Wintrow. You're a man. You cut your hair, your nails, and you are still Wintrow and a man. If you are a priest, then you will remain one, nine fingers or ten. If you must lose a finger, then you must lose a finger, but do not use it as an excuse to stop being yourself. She paused, almost savoring the boy's astonished silence. I know little of your saw, Wintrow, but I know much of the Vestrits. What you are born to be, you will be, whether it is a priest or a sailor. So step up and be it. Let them do nothing to you. Be the one who shapes yourself. Be who you are, and eventually all will have to recognize who you are, whether they are willing to admit it or not. And if your will is that you will shape yourself in Saw's image, then do so without whimpering. Basically telling Winshow, nut up or shut up. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I have not heard that phrase in so long. <laughs> no, she's she's saying. I know what she's saying. It's lot. <laughs> you made it so much less eloquent. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, this is the correct response to a thirteen-year-old whose life is now over because it's going to be less than perfect. Like their their finger is leaving. He's not a finger. Like that is not who he is. He is not defined by how many fingers he has. And he's he's just reminded of that from Vivacia here that you can still be a priest. You still have nine fingers. It doesn't matter how many you have. It's your mindset. Right. And, and Wintro loves that. <laughs> yeah, Wintro's like, oh my gosh, that was very saw of you. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, ship. And he said it like a benediction. Yes. And blessed her. I don't know. I feel really bad for Wintro. I mean, just to hear the way he's talking about what has happened, that his father is destroying him. 
that his father is deliberately destroying him and his way of life. It's so sad because in a way he's right. Yeah, he is. I mean, that was the goal. Yeah. And Vivacia just reminds him that it's his choice to let his father have that power. That sure, that is happening and that's really hard, but like, you know, you're making the choice to let that win. Yeah. You could continue to be a priest. You just have to believe it. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, like, what an inspirational thing, though, like, truly, for everyone out there of, like... Manifest it when trouble. <laughs> let's, let's get a manifestation board up. Let's, <laughs> let's think about what we want. Let's take some minutes, do some mindful exercises. Um, no, but I think it's really great that... Vivacia is there that she's being stern in this moment and she's not being too harsh. She's not saying mean things to him. She's not reprimanding him or even really telling him that he's wrong. She's just reminding him that like you are trying to use excuses as to why you don't want to do this anymore. And I'm not going to let you use this as an excuse. Right. Like that's not a good enough reason. Mm-hmm. And Wintro, like you said, really appreciates it. He's, he loves that. He is, he realizes that he's been looking at the situation all wrong and he knows what he has to do now. He puts his hands flat on the deck and bows his head and whispers a prayer to Sa, but he doesn't realize he's also reaching out for strength from Vivacia for the first time that she's felt it since Althea had left the ship. And she answers that. She doesn't let him know, like he doesn't know that it's not Sa giving him strength, but no matter who he addressed his plea to strength for, she was the one who is answering it. And then she prods him along to do what must be done, what he knows must be done, saying, go to your father and demand it be done here beside me in my name if they will not heed your wish. And he gets up and immediately goes to his father's cabin. And she says that she's afraid he's going to hesitate, but he doesn't. He is willing to do this now. This was all it took for him to realize that it's going to be okay. Yeah. So Wintro goes to his father's cabin. And we get Vivacia's narration of the scene where she's kind of peeking in. <laughs> it's like when when Paragon is peeking in on yeah. Althea and Brashen. <laughs> and she says that it was she was aware of what went on without a word that humans ascribe to it. So she doesn't really know how to describe it herself she's just aware and so we get kyle saying enter to the knock on the door him looking up and saying and demanding what do you do here you're the ship's boy no more than that don't bring your whinging to me or your whining to me and wintrow is standing there relatively calmly collected in a quiet voice even keeled saying I need this finger cut off. It was crushed and now it's infected. I can already tell it won't get better. I'd like it done while it's only the finger and not the whole hand. And Kyle is immediately on his back heel from that. His voice is thick, uncertain. He's like, are you sure? Like, you need to bring this to the first mate? Did the mate say that? Or is this just you? Like, I think this portion of, like, this event that is about to happen that we're about to go through is the one and only time we get to see Kyle as a father and less as the big bad villain, Kyle. Right. I mean, he's still the villain and he's still like, there are 
bits of him that are that villain uh, facade. But I think we see the cracks in it now, like especially in this scene where he is so taken aback. He's expecting his son to come in here and whine and complain, which is really interesting because when has Wintro done that to him since starting (laughs) this whole thing? Well, he considers like, I'm a priest. I want to go home kind of thing. True. To be a whine. Yeah. Fair enough. But like Wintro's never sought out Kyle to do that. Right. Right. (laughs) So like, it's weird that his first thought is like, I'm not going to listen to any of your whining. But then you can just, from the descriptors, tell how upset he is about this situation that, oh my gosh, my son is actually really hurt. Like this is actually a very serious situation. This went from a boy whining about an injury for too long to, oh, my kid is actually going to have to go through a serious surgery on board of a ship. <laughs> yeah. And, and Kyle is like, are, are you sure? Has the mate looked at it? And Winter's like, it scarcely needs a doctor to look at it. He unwraps the bandage, says like, there's a terrible smell too, needs to be done. And his father rises up and is like, I'll get the mate for you. Sit down, son. And Winter's like, I'd rather you did it. And then relates that, you know, I'd rather it be done by Vivacia as well. No sense in bleeding in your stateroom, he added almost as an afterthought. I can't, I've never, I can show you where to cut, sir. It's not that different from boning out a fowl for the pot. It's just a matter of cutting out the joint. That's another thing they taught me in the monastery. Sometimes it surprised me how much cooking had in common with medicine. The herbs, the knowledge of meat, the knives. It was some kind of challenge, Vivacia realized. She didn't understand it in full. She wondered if even Wintrow did. She tried to work it through in her head. If Kyle refused to cut the infected finger from his son's hand, he somehow lost. Lost what? She was not sure, but she suspected it had to do with who truly controlled Wintrow's life. Perhaps it was a challenge from the boy for his father to admit fully to himself the life he had forced his son into, to make him fully confront completely the harshness of it. There was in it also the foolish challenge to risk his body that he had refused in town. They had called him a coward for that, and deemed him fearful of pain. He would prove to them all now that it was not pain he was fearing. A shiver of pride in him traveled over her. Truly, he was unlike any vestrit she had ever carried before. What I think is really interesting about this is... Wintrow's stance in trying to get his father to take ownership of this. Yeah, for sure. And Kyle trying to slither his way out of it. He is trying to put distance between this and himself, that there's nothing that could have been done to save this. We see it especially later when Gantry tries to say Torg should be punished for this. It's just something that happened. Nobody could have seen it happening. There's nothing I could have done better. I did everything perfectly, always. And Wintrow trying to say, hey, let me help you take ownership for this. I'll even let you cut the finger off. And he's scared. He doesn't want to. He's never done this. Which is so interesting because not once does Wintrow point out, look at how scared you are, which he could because everybody's been doing that to him and it's not even Kyle's I mean, finger. He does point that out a little bit later. Well, in yeah. The, a couple but like <laughs> but still, like he could from the get-go right, be like, yes, yeah. ooh, chicken. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it isn't Kyle's finger that's gonna have to be cut off. It's no pain to him. 
Um, it's just a little blood. And I don't know. Winter is just so calm. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a really interesting thing. And again, we have his father just not knowing what to do. Saying he'll call the mate and Wintrow being like, the mate won't do, but Kyle's yelling out for Gantry. Says, I'm captain of this ship, he told Wintrow, in the intervening space of quiet. And on this ship, I say what will or will not do. And I say who does what. The mate does this sort of doctoring, not I. I had thought my father might prefer to do it himself, Wintrow essayed quietly. But I see you have no stomach for it. I'll wait for the mate on the foredeck then. It's not a matter of stomach, Kyle railed at him. And in that moment, Vivacia glimpsed what Wintrow had done. He had shifted this, somehow from a matter between the ship's boy and the captain to something between a father and a son. Then come and watch, father, to give me courage. He made his request, no plea, but a simple request. And he walks away and heads to the foredeck and tells Vivacia they're coming and relates the whole thing. <laughs> Obviously, Vivacia knows. But saying, I pray I don't scream, and Vivacia says, you've the will. Put your hand flat on my deck for the cut. I will be with you. And he sits there with the bandage off, fully looking at this, saying, no, there's no saving this. Better to be parted from it before it poisons my whole body. She felt him let go of the finger, felt him remove it from his perception of his body. In his mind, he had already done the deed. So he's kind of distancing himself already from the whole thing. He's already letting it go. It's those, you know, mindfulness exercises he's done in the monastery, being aware of your body in, in a way of this and being like, this is no longer functioning. It is not a good part of my body. It is poisoning me. It has to go. Just changing his mindset about it right. rather than this could be saved to this needs to go. It's so interesting. This made me think of the Marie Kondo concept of decluttering <laughs> your life of where you like, you thank the thing for helping you and then you let go of it Right. <laughs> in a weird way. That's what I thought of with this. Wintrow's like, okay, there is no salvage there. Like it's fine. If I keep this, it will poison the rest of my hand. Mm -hmm. It has to go. And like you said, it's just the rationalization, the setting up like, there is no other option here and coming to peace with that. And I think that's really big that he is able to do that. It's, it's a hard thing <laughs> to have to at 13, see a part of your body that needs to be removed. <laughs> and the index finger on your right hand, I think yeah. it is your dominant hand. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> it's yeah. that, And he's so calm about it. And he takes it, he handles it really, really well. Mm -hmm. I'm much older than he is, and I don't think I would handle it as well. No. Oh, God. No. <laughs> oh, I would be crying the whole time. They wouldn't even have any, like, tools out, and I'd be screaming. So, like. <laughs> I'd be like, knock me out. I don't care. <laughs> Give me that anesthesia. <laughs> but what's really interesting here is while he's doing this distancing, Vivacia says they're coming, and he response I know I can feel them through you so he has taken up Vivacia on her offer to be with her or to have her be with him rather for this process and 
they're kind of together. They've got the semblance of a connection and it's him acknowledging it out loud. Yeah. And and Vivacia says this was the first time that such acknowledgement happened of such a thing. Vivacia wished it could have come at a different time when they could have spoken about it more privately and explored that connection. But already people were coming up on the foredeck and there's no time to talk about it. So at every turn, they're just kind of stymied and they can't go deeper into a bond. Right. But it is really interesting that there's this joining happening. And it does remind me a lot of the wit joining with Fitz and Night Eyes. It's different, definitely, but it is similar in a lot of ways. Right. How Fitz moves more into Night Eyes' body to... Avoid pain. Yes. (laughs) The pain avoidance is not great as a habit. No. But in this this sense... Yes, it it helps. I get it. (laughs) There's no morphine on the ship, so... Um, So... But as they come... Kyle shows up with Gantry and says, boy thinks his finger needs to be chopped off. What do you think? It's almost as though Kyle is hoping that Wintrow is wrong. Yes. He wants Wintrow's finger to be fine. Yeah. And Gantry has to say, yeah, he is right. This needs to go. He says... I'll be having a word with Torg. I should have seen this hand before now. Even if we take the finger off now, the lad will need a day or so of rest. For it looks to me like the poison from his finger has worked into the hand. Torg knows his business, Kyle replied. No man can predict everything. Gantry looked lovely at his captain. There was no argument in his voice as he observed. But Torg has a mean streak to him, and it comes out worst when he thinks he has one who should be his better at his mercy. It's what drove Brashen awry. The man was a good hand, save when Torg was prodding him. Torg, he picks a man and doesn't know when to leave off riding him. Gantry went on carefully. It's not a matter of favoritism. Don't fear that. I don't care what this lad's name is, sir. He's a working hand aboard the ship, and a ship runs best when all hands can work. He paused. I'll be having a word with Torg, he repeated, and this time Kyle made no reply. So that's, I mean, Gantry, like this is, once again... Um, Gantry being a level-headed and fair mate and pointing out some things that need correcting in a very nice manner (laughs) for Kyle. It's really interesting because there isn't really a fight from Kyle when Gantry is telling him this. I mean... They obviously have respect for one another. Yeah, and it's so interesting looking at the interaction in that way because every other interaction we've had where somebody disagrees with Kyle, it's really escalated. Kyle has gotten red in the face and he's so angry and you're the most, the the dumbest person alive for thinking he doesn't know what he's doing. But here we have Gantry who says, no, you're wrong. (laughs) Basically straight to his face. Like, um, no, you created this situation by letting him think that he could get away with, Hurting the captain's son. I and think you you're should have... overstating Gantry's argumentativeness here because Vivacia specifically points out there's no argument in his voice. No. Which I think is what would really rile Kyle up is if he was, no, you're wrong. This is how it is. But Gantry's just making his observations, just saying like, you know, like basically saying, you know, Torque has a mean streak. And we talked about that before, too. We don't know how loyal Kyle is to Torque. Right. Because... 
he is a mean guy, and I think even Kyle knows that. Yeah, but like, I don't know, hear me out. Plenty of other people have just said a fact to Kyle, and he has reacted as though it has been argumentative. And so I don't... Gantry's a man in a position of power. Fair enough. And probably helps run his ship pretty well. But still not as powerful as Kyle. No, no. But as the first mate, we see with Sorcor, they have pretty much, uh, assuming that the the way it translates over is pretty similar, right? is that the first mate has the run of the crew, basically. They they kind of operate. They're the, the general manager, and the owner is the captain who does nothing. You know, <laughs> okay, sure. like Kenneth, he just kind of like, hey, we're going this way. And then Sorcor does all the managing of the shifts and everything like that. Right. So I, I'm assuming... Now, this is a, a big assumption for this uh, this argument or this conversation between the two. But I'm assuming that that relationship works very similarly with this. So in that case, Kyle might have put that responsibility into Gantry's hands and just has to like, okay, that's your job to discipline the crew members when they need to be talked to or whatever. Sure. I don't know. Because it could, I mean, yeah. it could still be seen as an extension of Kyle's power. Kyle put Gantry in charge, and now right. he has to be like, okay, trust you to do this. I Yeah, no, I think that's fair. But I'm, I'm just trying to say, like, sure, the way he said it wasn't argumentative, but what he is saying is essentially, you probably should have known that your second mate has a mean streak and makes people worse just because he doesn't know how to leave them alone. <laughs> like I, I'm reading it like the undercurrent is like, I don't know how you possibly couldn't know this, but like Torg, not a great dude. <laughs> I think that's why, like, that's why it doesn't come across to Kyle though, because what he's saying is I'll have a talking to Torg because he should have told me about it. So he never brings Kyle into it except for right. like, I'm not naming, it's not favoritism. I don't care what his name is. The ship works better when all the hands are working. Right. Right. So he keeps like blaming Torg for this, which it's true. But yeah, as a readers, we can be like, Kyle's the worst. He should have seen this. Like, right. He's the captain. Fair enough. But I think directly what Gantry is saying is it's Torg's fault. Let me talk to him. Right. But um, you don't think the undercurrent, there's no undercurrent I mean, there for, for a reader, but I don't think what Gantry you, is saying. You don't think in Gantry's mind, there's an undercurrent of like, how do you not know this? No, I don't. I think it's, I think Gantry doesn't love how Kyle runs some things, but really dislikes how Torg runs things and Kyle put Torg in power as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where like the disconnect comes in is like, you know, he's mean. So now I have to clean up your mess. (laughs) Right. But I don't think it's like the captain should know about the ship's boys injury. No, not about the, no, no, no. I'm trying to say not about his injury at all. Kyle should know that Torg is a jerk. Yeah, he does. And so therefore Torg would take an opportunity to punish, especially Wintro more than necessary just because he can. Yeah. Wintro's pointed that out too. Right. But like, I, I don't see that how that comes into play in this situation because everyone seems to know that because he put Torg in, in charge, right? Right. Yeah. But I'm saying, I'm trying to say that the undercurrent of this conversation is him pointing that, like, I can't believe you wouldn't realize that Torg 
would be mean to your son because he's your son and you've given him that power. But I, I, so yeah, that's, I understand that. I'm saying that I think everyone knew that. So I don't think Gantry's undercurrent is like, I can't believe you've done this. It's, I have to clean up, like what I said, I have to clean up Torg's messes. Right. But like Kyle is specifically defending Torg in this moment. He's like, well, accidents happen. And then he has to spell out, no, this isn't an accident. This is Torg being a jerk like always, especially because it's your son. Not that I care that it's your son and you shouldn't have known about the injury, but like, of course he's going to be even worse to your son because you've given him reign to do that. I think we're just going to disagree on that one. Fair enough. <laughs> the gantry is being relatively level-headed in his explanations. He, as we see from Vivacia later in this chapter, he knows what he's doing and he's a fair first mate. He's decent. But he is the one who has to do the surgery. And he looks to Wintrow and is like, you're ready? And Wintrow's like, yeah, I am. Wintrow's voice had gone low and deep. He went down on one knee, almost as if he were pledging his loyalty to someone, and set his injured hand flat on Vivacia's deck. She closed her eyes. She concentrated on that touch, on the splayed fingers, pressing against the wizard wood planking of the foredeck. She was wordlessly grateful that the foredeck was planked with wizard wood. It was almost an unheard of use for the expensive wood, but today she would see that it would be worth every coin the Vestrits had pledged for it. She gripped his hand, adding her will to his, that it would not move from the place where he had set it. The mate had crouched beside him and was unrolling a canvas kit of tools. A bunch of knives and probes and things like that. You'll want brandy, Gantry told him harshly. The man's heart was a deep trembling inside him. Vivacia was glad he was not unfeeling about this. No, the boy's word was soft. He may want it afterwards. She dared to speak up. Wintrow did not contradict her. I'll fetch it, Kyle said harshly. No, both she and Wintrow spoke the word together. I wish you to stay, Vivacia said more softly. It was her right. But in case Kyle did not understand it, she spoke it aloud. When you cut Wintrow, I bleed. In a matter of speaking, she added. She forced her own nervousness down. I have a right to demand that you be here with me when something as unsettling as this is happening on my deck. We could take the boy below, Kyle offered gruffly. No, she forbade him again. If this mutilation must be done, I wish it be done here where I may witness it. She saw no need to tell him that no matter where on the ship it was done, she would be aware of it. If he was that ignorant of her nature, let him remain so. Which we get a little bit of Vivacia gripping Wintrow's hand yeah, and willing it to stay there. So more connection and even more... Oh, uh, what's the word? It's just escaping me. Even more agency than I thought that she would have. Sure. And how she connects with yeah. Wintrow. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting to see how this is. It's a weird image in my mind of like, like when you see somebody like two hands against a window, Like that's how I'm imagining Wintrow and Vivacia, but. There is no window and you can't see Vivacia's imaginary hand gripping onto Wintrow. Um, but I think it is also interesting in this moment that Vivacia uses her power over Kyle to say, like, listen, I'm in I'm the real person in charge here. And I say, you have to stay and it has to be done here. 
and you don't get to get out of seeing this. You have to be here for this. And I almost think that that's Vivacia kind of like using that as a punishment for Kyle. I don't think she actually cares if he's there or not. No, I think it's just like you said, a punishment slash backing Wintro up with his insistence that he be there. Yeah. And like, even if she doesn't care if he's there, clearly Wintro does. And she's on Wintro's side. So there Kyle will, will remain. And she suggests that he gets somebody else to grab it. And he, Kyle is surprised to realize there is a little crowd forming on the deck because the rumor has spread. Every hand that was not occupied had someone somehow found an excuse to draw closer to the foredeck. So they were idly doing things, maybe lingering around that area, watching the spectacle, and Mild is ordered down below to grab some brandy and bring it back. No one else moved after Mild hastened away, and Kyle chose to ignore them. So Wintrow is gathering himself now. He is trying to prepare. Vivacia says that if he had noticed those who had gathered to watch, he gave no sign of it. His words were spoken to Gantry, and he's he wants to make sure Gantry knows what he is doing because Wintrow knows what he has to do, what has to be done, and how to be how to do it properly. So he directs Gantry on how to, you know, take out the joint so it is not jagged bone that's there, so the skin shut, everything right. like that, so it heals properly and it's fully taken out. There's no issues later. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we also find out it is the right hand that is injured, which means he's right-handed. And <laughs> not that that's an important detail, but it is a detail. And he is just very matter-of-fact. I think it's very admirable, honestly, that he is looking the finger that he needs to cut off in the face, basically, and telling someone else how to do it. Step-by-step, step, like... Cut here, feel around with the knife, go through. Slow is more careful is better than fast and a clean, yeah. like a clean slice, not a chop. Yeah, don't just chop it off. Yeah. Which, so he's like telling him, it's going to hurt me. It's going to take longer, but I want it done well and properly. Right. Which I think is really big of him. And also, I think it kind of shows off to the crew a kind of how smart he is. Not that they don't know that he's smart, I'm sure, but like he has knowledge in medicine. He knows the body. He can direct this in a way that will be better for him in the long run. And we also learned that that finger, the index finger on his right hand, was the finger that would have worn a priest's ring if he got to that point. So this is going away. And he prays, Saw in your mercy, do not let me scream. Do not let me faint nor look away. If I must do this, let me do it well. The undercurrent of the boy's thoughts was so strong, Vivacia found herself joined with him. He took a final breath, deep and steadying, as Gantry chose a knife and held it up. Mild is back, saying, I brought the brandy, sir, in a whisper, but it's miles away, according to Vivacia. Wintrow was doing something, Vivacia realized. With each breath, the muscles of his body slackened. He dwindled inside himself, going smaller and stiller, almost as if he were dying. He's going to faint, she thought, and pity for him filled her. Then in the next instant, he did something she did not understand. He left himself. He was not gone from his body, but in some strange way, he was apart from it. It was almost as if he had joined her and looked through her eyes at the slender boy kneeling so still upon the foredeck. 
His hair had pulled free from his sailor's queue. A few strands danced on his forehead. Others stuck to it with sweat. But his black eyes were calm. His mouth relaxed as he watched the shining blade come down to his hand. And she kind of remarks that somewhere there was great pain, but both Wintrow and her watched in a very detached way as this was happening. Wintrow is observing from somewhere clean blood, color is good, deep, thick red. It's like it's not infected. We're, we're doing good here. And they're watching this, and he speaks no word while it's ha- happening. The sound of the mate swallowing as he worked was almost as loud as the shuddering breath Kyle drew in as the blade sank deep into the boy's knuckle. Gantry was good at this, and as it goes through, Wintrow could feel the sound it made, and it was a white pain shooting up his finger bone, traveling swift and hot through his arm and into his spine. Ignore it, he commanded himself savagely. In a willing of strength unlike anything Vivacia had ever witnessed before, he kept the muscles of his arm slack. Basically, he willed his pain away like it was, a, as we learn later, like it was hunger or thirst to be ignored. Right. He is willing himself to just not react at all. Yeah. And then we have this like astral pro- projection thing where he lifts his awareness out and is hovering with Vivacia. Yeah, it's really interesting. This is the part that really made me think of Fitz and Night Eyes and their connection in that Night Eyes and Fitz can like hear each other's thoughts. They're looking out of the same eyes and Fitz's body is still off somewhere alive, (laughs) but it's a little bit more complex than that because I feel like usually when Fitz does this, he's basically asleep. Like there's nothing happening in Fitz's body when Fitz is not there. Whereas Wintrow has managed to keep enough of a sliver of himself in there to keep the body upright and where it needs to be. Yeah. I I think this is to me closer to skill walking. Also, like we've discussed, it's a little bit different. They must teach skill differently in the monastery and it's a different culture surrounding that. But to me, it feels like when Verity or Fitz are projected into like a battle scene, you know, they can kind of observe and feel things still in their body because it's just their spirit kind of leaving. Right. And it, to me, it felt more like that and more akin. Obviously it's related to his skill in some way because Wintrow is skilled. Right. <laughs> but it's weird combo between the two. And I wonder if it's a linking of that skill and like his awareness with vivation, that bond, which we have likened to the wit sometimes. Yeah. Where he can kind of leave his body but flows along that bond to be with Vivacia while he's observing. Well, I guess, to be fair, this is kind of what Verity did to Fitz. Ride along with a little yeah. bit? A he little was, bit, yeah. He was still aware of what was going on yeah. with his body. And he was also aware, he was looking through Fitz's eyes. He could comment, he could talk to Fitz in his mind. Wintrow is conversing with Vivacia as this goes along, although it's a little less clear of when Wintrow is talking and when Vivacia is thinking because they're so blended, which I think is where the comparison to Fitz and Night Eyes comes for me, is that there's kind of this loss of where one starts and the other ends. It's also hard to tell if, because I, I interpreted it as... Wintrow was still thinking to himself and Vivacia was just P 
peeking in on his thoughts still. So it's, oh, yeah. No. It's really hard to like, like you said, it's very vague in how this mm-hmm. is all written and blends together. So I saw it as more as purposeful with talking because Vivacia comments when he makes a comment of it's just like hunger, you can push it away. It's him explaining the thing that she's confused about of how he's able to do it to her knowing what she's thinking and like explaining for her benefit. So it's not, it's like a complete joining and that he know he's aware of it and he is reacting with it as much as she is. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But as this is happening, there's a mention that there's a lot of blood being spilled onto the wizard wood and soaking in it's soaking in and vivacia is reaching towards it in some way that she is and she's drawing it in and cherishing the closeness that comes the blood in her deck and the salt and the copper of it i think that's really interesting because it feels very dragon of her (laughs) (laughs) yeah like savoring the blood. I don't know. It's kind of what they were made for, right? They, yeah, I suppose. They, like, absorb essences and more closeness with Wintro. True. I mean, later on we have a scene where she catches his severed finger and then eats it that we'll go over. Right. So I think it's just that, like, this is my Bond person. I will take everything of them. Yeah. They belong to me just as much as I belong to them. Right. But again, I feel like that's a very dragon Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Mindset. For, for all live ships, I'm sure it's similar. Just like Paragon is kind of... And his madness is like a uh, hunger for blood kind of thing. Right. But um, once the bone has, or once the finger has been severed, Wintro then says, okay, now sew it shut. But here's how to do it. Like, don't do it too tight. You need there to be room. It has to be a little bit loose. And he holds his own skin in place. As, yeah, Gantry sews it shut, which is insane and again it goes back to this like he's still in his body enough to be able to use it right and to be able to talk through his body but yet he is most of his consciousness disassociated yeah most of his consciousness is chilling with vivacia safe from the pain yeah winter's father coughed and turned away he walked stiffly to the railing to stand and stare out at the passing islands as if they held some deep and sudden fascination for him. Wintrow appeared not to notice, but Gantry darted a single glance at his captain. Then he folded his lips, swallowed hard, and took up the needle. The boy held his own flesh together as the mate stitched it and knotted the gut thread. He sets his hands back down to the deck, and the whole time he gave no sign by word or movement that he felt any pain at all. He might have been patching canvas, Vivacia thought. And here's the, the section on the pain. No, he was aware somewhere of the pain. His body was aware, for the sweat had flowed down the channel of his spine, and his shirt was mired in it, clinging to him. He felt the pain somewhere, but he had disconnected his mind from it. It had become only his body's insistent signal to him that something was wrong, just as hunger or thirst was a signal. A signal that one could ignore when one must. Oh, I see. She did not quite, but was moved at what he was sharing with her. So there it is, yeah. So he was sharing that misunderstanding, I guess. So they are more mingled than when I first read it through. But when everything is done, the bandaging is done, he's rocking back on his heels, but wise enough not to stand and say that this is like, I don't feel any pain, I can move around and do everything. He knows that 
this is going to come at a cost. Right. No sense in tempting fate to faint right now or anything like that. Instead, he takes the cup of brandy and gulps that down as if he was super thirsty and it was water. The glass was bloodied with his fingerprints when he handed it back to Mild. And he looks around slowly, calling his awareness back to his body. Clenching his teeth against the white wave of pain from his hand, black dots swam for an instant before his eyes, and he blinks them away, focusing for a time on the two bloody handprints he had left on the vivacious deck. The blood had soaked deep into the wizard wood. They both knew that no amount of sanding would ever erase those twin marks. Slowly, he lifted his gaze and looked around. Gantry was cleaning the knife. He returned the boy's gaze, his brow furrowed, but a small smile on his face. He gave him the tiniest of the smallest of nods. Mild's face was still pale, his eyes huge. Kyle gazed out over the rail. So we get kind of this culmination, this this climax of this moment for Wintrow. He got through everything without any kind of hint of pain, besides the sweat. Right. And then there's the two marks that are going to be forever in Vivacious deck. Those two blood marks. Right. And I think that's really interesting. And it does kind of mark the deeper bond that they now have. Yeah. That they are tied together in some way. As it seems creatures are wont to do when their essences are intermingled. <laughs> right. <laughs> it also, in my mind, immediately recalled to me Paragon's description because I... I read the description and I know what it is, but I skim over it in my head because he is described as having dark splotches all over his deck. Right. From all of the people who have died on those decks. Yeah. And those are just stains. And you can look at them and be like, oh, someone died there. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, the wizard wood doesn't let go of the blood. It's Memories stay. Yeah. yeah. And... I think it's also really telling that Kyle never turned back around, that there was no finishing this, that he's kind of given up on watching, which I'm not really sure what that says about. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, to be honest, I wouldn't want to watch anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't watch that, watch that happen to anybody. It would be gross. (laughs) Especially your own son or your own relative. I'm sure it's incredibly hard for him. But he has to be the strong man, right? So he turns away because he doesn't want to throw up. Maybe he just doesn't like blood. I don't know. Or maybe he's feeling really guilty. Yeah. And watching this thing that he is putting his own child through, he has to turn away to really think about it and like maybe mull over ways that it's not actually his fault so that he can feel less bad about it. But as he's still standing away, I mean, obviously Gantry has now acknowledged him as a man in some way, I guess. I don't know. Um, with the small smile and the nod, it's a kind of friendly gesture. And Wintrow has a little speech here. He says, I'm not a coward. He didn't speak loud, but his voice carried. His father turned slowly to the challenged words. I'm not a coward, Wintrow repeated more loudly. I'm not big. I don't claim to be strong, but I'm neither a weakling nor a coward. I can accept pain when it's necessary. A strange, odd light had come to Kyle's eyes. The beginnings of a smile hovered at the corner of his mouth. You are a haven, he pointed out with a quiet pride. Wintrow met his gaze. There was neither defiance nor the will to injure, but the words were clear. 
I am a vestrit. He looked down at the bloody handprints on the vivacious deck, to the severed forefinger that, he, that had still rested there. You've made me a vestrit. He smiled without joy or mirth. And with that, he says, as grandmother said, blood will tell, and offers his severed finger to his father as a prize to take. Yeah, he gets a little weird now. <laughs> yeah, it, it starts strong and then... little uh, shock and adrenaline that just keeps him going, and he picks it up, saying, like, it'll never wear a priest's signet. Will you take it as a token of your victory? Kyle is, of course, darkened. His face is darkening with uh, the blood of anger. Vivacious suspected he was close to hating his own flesh and blood at the moment. Wintrow stepped lightly toward him, a very strange light in his eyes. Vivacia tried to understand what was happening to the boy. Something was changing inside him. An uncoiling of strength was filling him. He met his father's gaze squarely, yet in his own voice was nothing of anger, nor even pain as he stepped forward boldly to place close enough to invite to a place close enough to invite his father to strike him or embrace him. But Kyle doesn't move at all. And it was a denial that that stillness was a denial of all the boy was, of all he did, and Wintrow then knows in that instant that he would never please his father, that his father had never even desired to be pleased by him. He'd only wanted to master him, and now he knew he would not. And Wintrow saying, oh, no, sir, you don't want it? Then with a casualness he's faking, he throws it over to the side of the ship to be rid of it. I think this is a really interesting scene because we do have Wintrow, you know, sticking to his morals and standing up for himself in a really good use of the situation by telling everyone who's been watching this whole thing, like, see, I'm not a coward. This is this has never been about cowardice. It was a stupid decision and there was no reason for me to get hurt over something that I couldn't win. So this was necessary and I did it and I didn't cry. I didn't scream. I didn't try to hide from it. It was of my own doing. And it's because I'm a vestrit. And I think that especially is a hit to Kyle's pride that he is in public in front of the entire crew. I'm not a haven. (laughs) Yeah. Denouncing his relationship with his father, basically being like, no, I'm a vestrit, not a haven. And then being like, I am what you made me, dad. Yeah. Just Want like my you finger. <laughs> this yeah. is this is your doing. <laughs> That's only too bad that it wasn't his middle finger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I, I think it's really interesting. And to have Kyle so upset. I don't know. It's like so interesting because I just want to know what the crew is thinking. I want to know what's going on in their minds and how they're feeling about this and what they're thinking of their captain. Like, does this make Kyle less of a man to them? Does this make him more of a man? Is it, do they lose respect for Kyle in any sense because of how he's handling this? I don't know. Maybe slightly in my mind, maybe slightly, but he's still the captain, right? Right. He still has that like prestige, but definitely their esteem of Wintrow has been raised up immensely. Right. And I don't know. I just find it so interesting. And I I love that Wintrow has now realized that this isn't about Wintrow at all. Like, there was never anything he could have done that would have made his father proud. It was never about making his father proud. It was about becoming something his father could control. And he's clearly never going to be that. Right. And 
that is what makes him the most mad. It's that there is no taming, which is really interesting as a concept because technically Wintrow is male. So you would think that Kyle would recognize his right to not be lorded over or whatever. I don't know. He still owns him until he's 18. That's what he said. 16. 16, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. But then he's just supposed to not be his property. You know what and I mean? Then, like, then is he's there... a man. Wintrow is not a man yet. Mm. He's supposed to act like one and look like one, but he's not a man on his own until and yet, 16. And yet his daughter, who is 12, is a woman. And his her mother needs to get over the fact that she's not a little baby anymore. Okay, Walt, cool. Walt is the favorite. Love, love the misogyny. Love the double standards. Can't wait to see more, which we will. <laughs> so Wintrow claims victory, tosses his finger over the side, and then stands at the deck holding the railing, looking forward. And everyone is quiet. No one's moving. And Gantry speaks into that silence saying mild take him below see him to his birth check on him at each bell come to me if he runs a high fever or is delirious gives out some you know more instructions looks at his bottles of medicine remarks the others out of the side of his uh side of his mouth quietly saying you others should find your duties before i find them for you and it was enough of a threat that all the men dispersed his words had been simple, the commands well within the range of his duties as mate. But no one could miss that in a very evasive way, Gantry had come between the captain and his son. He had done it as smoothly as he might for any other man aboard who had brought himself too sharply to the captain's attention. It was not an unheard of thing for the mate to do. He'd done it often enough before when Kyle had first taken over the vivacia. But never before had he interfered between the captain and his son. That he d had done so now marked his acceptance of Wintrow as a genuine member of the crew rather than as the captain's spoiled son, brought along for the sake of his discipline. I think this kind of shows that Gantry do is a good character, that deep yeah. down he does have good morals. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, what, what we saw of him through Althea's eyes... There's a potential that he still is sexist and doesn't think women could work, but there is also a potential that it's just because Althea didn't prove herself as a real sailor. Like, we don't know for sure that it's because she's a woman, um, but he did kind of relish in making fun of her and not making her life easy. You know what I mean? So, like, on the one hand, not, like... I don't know. But on the other hand, he does seem to have good character. He did, we now find out, stand up for the crew whenever Kyle had first taken over. Not on this journey, but the last journey. That he is a man of the people, kind of. Yeah. Like, sure, he has a couple questionable ideals, but for the most part, he kind of seems like a good guy. Mild made himself small and unnoticed as he waited because... He had instructions from Gantry to bring Wintrow below, but Kyle and Wintrow were still standing there in silence. But then Kyle turns without a word and stalks to the back of the ship. Mild watched him go for a time, then jerked his eyes away as if he were somehow shameful to watch his captain retreat to his own quarters. And mild, Gantry suddenly went on as if there had been no pause. Assist Wintrow in moving his gear and bedding to the forecastle. He'll bunk with the rest of the men. Once he's settled, give him this. No more than a spoonful and bring the rest back to me right away. It's laudanum. 
I want him to sleep. It'll speed the healing. And with no more than that, Gantry turned and walked away. And Miles kind of has to pluck at Wintrow's sleeves to get him to move because Wintrow is finally starting to feel it, saying, like, I just want to stay here. <laughs> right. But that's that's Gantry giving him extra help that probably wouldn't have been accepted with Kyle's presence there. <laughs> right. <laughs> giving some painkiller. <laughs> right. No, it is a very good way to get Wintrow the medicine that he actually does clearly need. <laughs> and moving him from that cramped little closet prison that he had to the men's quarters yeah he gets to join everybody else he is really the crew now which i think is very nice of him that is a big kindness to have given him although maybe it's under the guise of well it'll be easier for um mild to be able to check up on him right if he puts him with everybody else but either way very nice of him yeah, and a short time later, Vivacia realizes that Gantry has come back up and has taken the wheel over, and she knows that he only does that when he was disturbed and wants to think things over. He was not, she thought to herself, a bad mate. Brashen had been better, but Brashen had been with her longer. Gantry's touch on the wheel was sure and steady, reassuring, but not distrustful of her. So we have her kind of pledge here, too, that he is a decent mate. He doesn't know her as well as Brashen yet, obviously, and we know Brashen is a very competent sailor. Right. But also, he needs time to think, and that's, you know, the Kyle effect. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it, again, it makes me wonder what's going on in the crew's head. Like, how are they viewing this? Because obviously, we as readers are going to have a completely different perspective than they are because, one... Most people reading this are 21st century people. We have values from today. So we know we have a different reason for thinking Kyle is a trash person than somebody in this book might. Right. His views are kind of normal and not that surprising. So there isn't that coloring of his actions going into people viewing what he does. But in this moment, it's almost like the veil has been released that like maybe Kyle isn't as competent as he likes people to think he is. And maybe this is the first time people got to see the pettier side of Kyle. I don't know. It It's hard to tell. It is Kyle obviously a bad captain and horrible person, or is this the first real peak of that? I like how you added bad captain in there. Listen, I'm not saying Althea's uh, right about everything, <laughs> but it does seem as though she might have been right about most things. So we get kind of a peek in with Vivacia alone now. After everything has gone down, Wintrow's below, Gantry's at the wheel, and she looks down at her hand and she caught Wintrow's finger as Wintrow flung it over and compares it to her own saying, yeah, my carver did a competent job, but overall, she bore only a passing resemblance to a true creature of flesh and blood. There's no whirls of a fingerprint, you know, there's no fine hair follicles or anything like that. It's just a jointed wood finger. Yeah. Realistic-esque. Yeah. From a distance. For a time longer, she examined her treasure, then she glanced furtively aft before she lifted it to her lips. She could not throw it away, and she had no place to keep it save one. She placed it in her mouth and swallowed. It tasted like his blood had smelled. 
of salts and copper, and in an odd way like the sea itself. She swallowed it down to become part of herself. She wondered what it would become of it, deep inside her wizardwood gullet. Then she felt it being absorbed, in much the same way the deck planks had soaked up his blood. She had never eaten anything meat before. She had never known hunger or thirst. Yet in taking of Wintrow's severed flesh into herself, she satisfied some longing that had gone nameless before. We are one now, she whispered to herself. With Wintrow in his buck, at bunk echoing that in his laudanum dream before he falls asleep. His flesh felt hot and dry, tight over the bones of his face and arm. To be one with Sa, he said in a small cracked voice, the priest's ultimate goal. I shall be one with Sa, he repeated more firmly. It is my destiny. Vivesha had not the heart to contradict him. So the finger absorbs into her. We also got uh, her, this is the second thing she swallowed. She swallowed that earring from the old sailor beforehand. Right. And she never relayed that that absorbed into her. So living things, specifically blood, but living things in general, absorb into wizard wood. And this creates maybe an even deeper bond between the two, but also that unknown thing that is satisfied, that longing that she didn't know about. Maybe hidden deep down is that dragon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. There's like those little hints maybe of the dragon longing. But I think ultimately what's really interesting about this section with Vivacia is that this whole time there's a lot of mention of pain, right? At the very beginning, the part that we kind of skipped over is her asking Wintrow if it hurts, him asking if she feels pain, and her saying not in the same way humans do. But then with this whole chapter of Wintrow's pain, she does kind of feel it. She feels his pain in some weird way. And she can tell that it is not pleasant. And so I think it's really interesting as we continue what that means about the living state, I guess, of Wizardwood, of what that means. Like, what is the difference between Wizardwood and humans besides their massive size and the fact that they're attached to a boat? <laughs> also, they don't have fingerprints, which means they could commit a crime if they were given legs. <laughs> well, that's a really big fingers then. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but also, we have the really sad ending to it where even though they've created this deeper bond, Vivacia is like, yeah, I'm to be one with you, you know, that's great. And Wintrow is still wishing after to be one with Saw. He's still hoping for that priest's life, right? Right. And Vivacia's just going to give him that feeling right now because, like, there's he's <laughs> he's yeah. high right now. Like, <laughs> Yeah, this whole chapter has really been him reaching out, thinking it's to Saw. And connecting with Vivacia and finding fulfillment in that without realizing that it's not Saw, it's mm -hmm. Vivacia. And Vivacia just like, I'll just keep this to myself. <laughs> right. At least I get the support that I need. At least I get the connection I need. And if he wants to think that's because of Saw, so be it. Mm -hmm. Well, we join in the mind of another live ship here. We got Paragon's section. And it is raining in Bingtown, the hallmark of winter there i guess right <laughs> and it is dripping down him it is loud he says it's cold he says cold was mostly something he remembered from sensations humans had stored for him wood cannot get cold he told himself 
I'm not cold. No, it, it was not a matter of temperature. It was just the annoying sensation of water trickling over him. Which I thought was a weird way to start this. Right. Because it's Paragon seeming, trying to convince himself, like, no, I don't feel things. I yeah. am not a human. That he is othering himself from humans, but also, I think they can feel temperature, right? Like a little bit, I think, but not again, not as humans do, right? Right, but like, especially without like, somebody bonded to to yeah. feel, experience that feeling through. But I feel like they know the different temperature of the water on their hull, right? I think there yeah. are mentions of that where like the water has changed temperature because that's like a different current or something. And like they can tell, or maybe I'm thinking of Tarman. That's mostly. Ser- that's serpents for sure. They they comment a lot on the right. the difference of temperature, but it's probably live ships as well. Yeah, so I just I feel like maybe they can at least if they can't sense pain, they can at least sense temperature. Right, and it, it seems like it's just relaying a lot of human emotions. Or relating a lot of human feelings and things to live ships, but then the live ships themselves being like, it's not the same as you guys feel. Like, right. It's not the same as the memories remember that as. I just kind of have a similar feeling. So right. again, it's Robin Hobb trying to describe living wood, which is yeah. pretty impossible, but it's an intriguing description. I think it's really interesting because... Something that has always intrigued me is this idea that um, everybody experiences sensations differently and there's no way for us to compare between each other, right? So, like, there's no way to know if the color that I see is pink that we all point to and say, that's pink, that everybody sees that exact same color whenever they look at it. Like, for all I know, what I see is pink. Somebody else, like, if they could see it through my eyes, that's their version of blue, And like, there's no way to verify that. And that idea has always like, what a weird concept. And so to see the live ships be like, from memory, you felt something similar, but this is different. That feels very same vein to me of like, they just have more lives and (laughs) people differences to compare it to, to be like, it's a similar thing, but it's different for me personally and how I experience it. And I think that's really cool. I really like it. I don't think it was purposeful on Robin's Robin Hobbs. Sorry, I don't think she tailored this to my niche interest, but maybe she did. Who knows? <laughs> she was writing for you in 1998. I think this came out <laughs> when so. I was two whole years old. <laughs> so Paragon wipes his brow from the rain and shakes it off. And there's a voice saying, I thought you said it was dead. A husky contralto voice spoke unnervingly near him. That was another problem with rain. The sound of it filled his ears, numbing them to important sounds like footsteps on wet sand. Who's there? He demanded. His voice sounded angry. Anger was a better thing to show humans than fear. Fear only made them bolder. Such a sad response. We've talked about it before. I won't go into it. Just I'll say it's sad and then move on. (laughs) Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. No one replied. He hadn't expected anyone. They could see he's blind. And then his thought is they'd probably creep about and he'd never know where they were until the rock hit. So he puts all his concentration listening to stealthy footsteps. But he recognizes the second voice that speaks up and it is Mingsley from Jamalia. And he says, and Mingsley says, I thought it was. It never moved nor spoke at all the last time I was here. 
So he says, well, this puts a whole new slant on the, the, the sale. The Ludlucks have been reluctant to deal, and now I see why. I thought I was bidding on Deadwood. My offer was far too low. I shall have to approach them again. I think I've changed my mind. The woman's voice was low. Paragon couldn't decide what emotion she was repressing. Disgust? Fear? He could not be sure. I don't think I want anything to do with this. But you seemed so intrigued earlier, Mingsley objected. Don't be squeamish now. So the figurehead is alive. That only increases our possibilities. I am intrigued by Wizardwood, she had admitted reluctantly. Someone brought me a tiny piece to work on once. The customer wanted me to carve it into a shape of a bird. I told him, as I tell you, that the work I do is determined by the wood I am given, not by any whim of my own or the customer's. The man urged me to try, but when I took the wood from him, it felt evil. If you could steep wood with an emotion, I'd say that one was pure malice. I couldn't bear to even touch it, let alone carve it. I told him to take it away. Mingsley, of course, brushes it off, saying that fine sensibilities of artists are often, you know, assaged by tons of gold. <laughs> you can do anything for the money, and it's fine. We can do anything, really, and he keeps trying to sell this wood to this woman who is here, and we know it is Amber. Right. Saying, like, we can carve everything. Imagine the beads. Imagine, you know, chairs. Imagine cradles with women's faces carved that are singing lullabies. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I do want to quick touch on the fact that we now have confirmation that Amber did, in fact, know about Wizardwood. Yes. And has touched it before. And felt malice. Right. Which, to her credit, might be why whenever Althea compared her to a Wizardwood statue, she looked disgusted. Yeah, that's true. There's something evil about those, and she does not want to be associated with whatever it is that is going on there. But I do want to ask you, why do you think her skill, fingers, because we know it's the skill that's allowing her to read into the wood, quote-unquote, why is she feeling malice? I'm not entirely sure but I can make a guess that it's from the dragon's knowledge. Like they're somewhat aware-ish of what was happening to them. Mm. And those memories are still in there. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Interesting. What about you? I was wondering if maybe it's just the time the wood had spent with the men who would have had to smuggle the wood away from wherever it was. Oh, interesting. Of like... maybe. Probably not very good people are the ones that are stealing the wizard wood. <laughs> true, true. And there probably was some malice to have to get the wizard wood away from the stockpile or whatever. So I'm wondering if it's maybe just the most recent emotion because it seems like the way the skill fingers work is that like the more time you spend, the deeper your knowledge gets. So it would be very surface level, surface level of what she's feeling from the top. So I don't know. Maybe it's just the whatever has been soaked up already. Kind of like a slower version of the stone. Right. I guess the stone would, you know, the stone does seep your stuff away, but like a little bit faster, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you notice it more, I guess. And Wizardwood doesn't seem to, like, take your stuff away, right? It just seems to just gain the qualities of... essence. Yeah. It's like your literal soul being hunked away versus, like, <laughs> the essence of your soul. Yeah. 
So Mingsley is trying to convince Amber here, the woman who is on the beach, saying like, no, we can make so much money. No one else is going to be offering anything like this. We could find out how to quicken the women's faces on a headboard of a cradle, teach them to sing lullabies, and we'd have a cradle that could sing a child to sleep. The thought makes my blood cold, the woman said. You fear this would then, Mingsley gave a short bark of laughter. Don't succumb to Bingtown superstition. I don't fear wood, the woman snapped back. I fear people like you. You charge into things blindly. Stop and think. The Bingtown traders are the most astute merchants and traders this part of the world has ever seen. There must be a reason why they do not traffic in this wood. You've seen for yourself that the figurehead lives, but you don't ask how or why. You simply want to make tables and chairs of the same substance. And finally... You stand before a living being and blithely speak of chopping up his body to make furniture. Mingsley made an odd sound. We have no real assurances that this is a live being, he said tolerantly. So it moved and it spoke. Once. Jumping jacks on sticks move, as do puppets on string. Parrots talk. Shall we give them all the status of a human? His tone was amused. And Amber snaps back saying like, don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. We've both been down to the docks and seen the live ships talking to one another. You can lie to yourself and convince yourself of anything you wish, but don't expect me to accept your excuses and half-truths as reasons I should work for you. No, I was intrigued when you told me that there was a dead live ship here, one whose wood could be salvaged. But even that was a lie. There is no point to me standing out here in the rain with you any longer. I've decided this is wrong. I won't do it. Paragon heard her striding away, heard Mingsley call after her. You're stupid. You're walking away for more money than you can even imagine. Her footsteps halted. Paragon strained his ears. Would she come back? Her voice alone came, pitched in a normal tone, but carrying clearly. Somehow, she said coldly, you have confused profitable and not profitable with right and wrong. I, however, have not. Then he could hear her walking away again. She strode like an angry man. Go off, queen. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Tell the stupid traders what is what. I guess technically he's not a traitor. He's like... No, he's from Jamalia. He's a Jamalian. But like, yes, <laughs> like just because you can make money off of it doesn't mean it's a good thing. Like greed should not be the driving force in this. Like think about morals, think about what's right and wrong and then make decisions. And even then maybe do some more research before like, well, it's going to make us money. So who cares what the long-term ramifications are? Like, (laughs) (laughs) And it's really interesting because they clearly don't know the secrets of how a live ship work, right? Like for this cradle idea, I don't think Mingsley understands that three generations of people has to die before it will start singing songs. And even then it won't just sing. It's going to be a person that is the amalgamation of three generations of people. Right. With so, three different faces, you know, yeah, like, no, well, it would have one face probably. Well, no, if, if the whole thing came true of what he was saying, Amber would be carving multiple faces of oh, women true. on the cradle. I don't I don't even want to know how that would work. Oh, scary. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Ew, oh, would, do you think they would all move as one if there were like three heads on a wizardwood item? Would they all move as one or would they all have different personalities? No idea. Also, maybe it wouldn't have to be three generations because it's much a cradle is much smaller than a ship. Maybe. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know how it works, really. 
I mean, the wizard wood charms work without, you know, someone dying. So true. It's hard to say. Yeah. Also, sorry. One more aside that I just thought of. Um, mostly the wizard wood charms, as far as we know, are not from live ships. They're from some secret stash of wizard wood. So I wonder if it would change because Paragon's wood has already been awakened. So would part of him be in every single thing that was carved? Yeah, I think so. That's crazy. But no one really knows what happens. And this is what Mingsley gets into right after this. Right. Like, would you die if you're separated from your wizard wood and your figurehead chopped off? No one knows because no one has ever tried it, ever tried it or wants to try really, except for people looking for money. Right. So I don't know if Paragon would be part of that. He doesn't know if he would be part of that. He just doesn't know how it's going to do. And, and Mingsley is trying to like say, hey, are you actually alive? Like, would you die if I did this? Because I intend to do that. I right. intend to chop you free. Right. And Paragon just invites Mingsley. Why don't you come close enough to try? And then after a short time, he hears Mingsley leave because, yeah, I wouldn't want to stand there with a right a violent room, a rumored violent figurehead that's like three times my size, saying, "Hey." Come here and try to chop me down. <laughs> right. So, so Paragon waits in the rain a little bit after Mingsley leaves. And he hears her speak again. He does not start, but he did turn his head slowly to hear her better. Ship? Ship, may I come closer? My name is Paragon. Paragon, may I come closer? Aren't you going to tell me your name? He finally countered. A short hesitation. I am called Amber. But that is not your name. I've had a number of names, she said after a time. This is the one that suits me best here and now. During this whole conversation that they have, Paragon is not used to somebody like Amber and is very taken aback at certain things that she says and how she reacts to things that he does and quickly moves towards friendship and he's like wondering at himself like why is she moving so quickly towards this he does things without realizing what he's doing multiple times just because of like her candid nature right well i think in thinking about this the way amber is approaching him is talking to him like another live being and the way brashen and althea talk to him and probably everybody else is he's a live ship hey ship How's yeah, it going? It's it's a ship that happens to be able to talk, not a living being who is a person in their own right. And that's hard because I know that Althea like respects Vivacia and sees Vivacia as a member of her family, but in a way that's there's, a ship. Yeah. It's a it's not ownership, but it's like a step above. There's you know? in, in my mind, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a very fine distinction between the two because like you said, Althea and Brashen see them as a ship. It, that's how they grew up. It's utilitarian. It is a part of their family. Yes, definitely. It is an individual person, a being, but it's also a ship. Right. Like there's, there's just always that underlying like, yeah, you're a live ship. You're part of the family. You are an individual. You'll be here for a long time, but you're meant to be sailed and we're, we're going to do it together. It's great. But Amber's just approaching it like, hey. Can I talk to you? Right. Like, what are you? <laughs> yeah. Like, let me talk to you as a, another being to being. 
how are you? Like, <laughs> and he he offers the the trust. He puts his hand out for a shake, and that's like the trust meter that he has with her too. And she hesitates, but does take his hand to shake it. But in his head, he's like, she has to know how easy it would be to me for me to take that hand and whip her about and kill her. Right. So it's just like him doing these little things of like, is she really truly approaching me like this? Right. And she is. And that's what's so interesting, too, is that there's an honesty about Amber. There is. I mean, obviously, there's some things that are hidden, like what her real name is and where she's from. But he points out she could have lied to him. She could have just said, no, that's my name. And instead, he she gives an answer. Yeah, she's fairly, fairly truthful with uh, Paragon as opposed to Fitz. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair, she still does speak in riddles to him and doesn't fully answer questions and has more questions that she asks than answers. But it is kind of similar to how she works with Fitz, which is kind of a sad analogy because it's like a completely broken man of a ship. And Fitz, who's a com- completely broken man. Yeah. <laughs> and they both were, uh, react really well to Amber slash Fool. So great. <laughs> Love that. But. <laughs> and Paragon's asking like, hey, why'd you come back? And Amber replies, well, as Mingsley put it, I'm intrigued by you. I have always been more curious than wise. Which, hint there, hint that I've had many names, hint that she stomped away like a man. Like, there's lots yeah. of lots of things here. That uh, rereading is fun to look at. But she says, uh, yet any wisdom I've ever gained has come to me from my curiosity. So I have never learned to turn away from it. And they kind of go into the physical description of Paragon a little bit where he brings up that he's blind. And she can, she says like, yeah, I, I see that. Mingsley called you ugly, but whoever shaped your brow and jaw, your jaw, your lips and nose was a master carver. I wish I could have seen your eyes. What kind of person would destroy such art? Her words moved him, but they also nudged him toward a thing he could not, would not recall. Gruffly, he replied, Such compliments are they meant to distract my mind from the fact that you have not answered my request? The request to learn more about her. And basically she says, like, I'm Amber. I carve wood, make jewelry, beads, that sort of thing. May I touch your face? The question came so swiftly that he found himself nodding before he had considered. Why, he asked belatedly. He felt her come closer to him. He felt her fingers brush the edge of his beard. It was a very slight touch, and yet he shivered to it. The reaction was too human. Had he been able to draw back, he would have. So again there, we have another description of Paragon being like, nope, that's too human. Want to distance myself from that again. Right. But also an example of Paragon just being like, yeah, you can touch my face. Wait, what? Why? (laughs) Amber's very easily disarming and the fool and the beloved can be very, very disarming and charming and knows what to say to people when, even without the premonitions that they have. And I do think it's interesting because so when Paragon had reached out the hand and allowed her to shake his hand, she was gloved and now she is not. And so I wonder if part of that shiver is... From the skill, because the dragon part of him would probably hunger for that skill. Right. And so I wonder if to the shiver, it's not just about a human emotion. It's pushing away of that dragon reaction of I need that. 
or that physical reaction of the shiver. And then Paragon just associates it with a human emotion. Right. Yeah. Right. But the physical reaction would be created by that underlying need for the, the silver, the, the sudden touch of like, oh, this is all of these memories and this is all of right. like living magic kind of stuff. Because it is unnerving to have that happen. But then she also says, I cannot touch you like this. Can you lift me up? And Paragon is completely taken aback by this request because it is a vast trust that she's offering him immediately. And he says, I could crush you in my hands, but you will not, she told him confidently. Please. The urgency in her plea frightened him. Why do you think I would not? I've killed before, you know. Whole crews of men. All of Bingtown knows that. Who are you not to fear me? For an answer, she set her bare, wet hand to the skin of his arm. She flowed through his grain. The warmth of her shot through him the way the heat of a woman's hand on a man's thigh can inflame his whole body. Both ways, he suddenly knew. The flow was both ways. He was within her flesh as much as she was within his timbers. Her humanity sang in him. He wallowed in her senses. You are more than wood, she cried aloud. Discovery was in her voice, and he knew the sudden terror of betrayal. She was inside him, seeing too much, knowing too much. All the things he had set aside from himself, she was awakening. He did not mean to push her so hard, but she cried out as she fell on the wet sand and rocky beach. He heard her gasping for breath as the rain fell all around them. Are you hurt? he asked gruffly after a time. Things were calming inside him. No, she spoke quietly. Then before he could apologize, I'm sorry, she said. Despite everything I expected you to be, wood. I've a gift for wood. When I touch it, I know it. I know how its grain bends, where it runs fine or coarse. I thought I could touch you and guess how your eyes had been. I touched you thinking to find only wood. I should not have been so... Forgive me, please. And before I, I move on there, I just kind of want to talk about that because he mentions things inside him multiple times in this these few pages that he wants to not remember, things that he has pushed aside from himself. And then we have this invasion from Amber flowing through him and awakening these things, which she is immediately, immediately apologetic for because of the same feelings I'm sure she's learned from Fitz. Right. The same kind of violations that he felt from Galen. Like that's all has been shared with those two together well fool also had their yeah, memories just gone through yeah with will and regal yeah yeah so it's also firsthand that some things are just private and that you shouldn't go digging around in people's memories and that's what she did and i think you're right i think this is more of a deep regret of doing that without intention right that it doesn't matter how good her intentions were com coming in. She breached a level of privacy that she should not have. And I think it's really interesting that Paragon is willing to forgive this. And not only that is intrigued by her, her sorrow, I guess. I don't know her, her apology. Yeah. How contrite she's being and how deeply she feels about that invasion. Saying, like, it's all right. I did not mean to push you so abruptly. I did not mean I did not intend you should fall. And her immediately saying, No, 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 it was my fault. You were right to push me away. I and then pauses 
takes stock, takes silence and says, can we please start again? If you wish, he said awkwardly, this woman, he did not understand this woman at all. So quickly she had trusted him and now so swiftly she moved towards friendship. He was not accustomed to things like this happening, let alone happening so quickly. It frightened him. But more frightening was the thought that she might go away and not come back. He searched himself for some trust of his own to offer her. Would you like to come in out of the rain, he invited her. I'm at a terrible list, and it's no warmer within than without, but at least you'd be out of the rain. Thank you, she said quietly. I'd like that. I'd like that a great deal. And so they're moving towards a friendship as well. Yeah, it's really interesting how close they are. And I think, again, it comes back to the respect that she is giving him, the respect that they are both living creatures. And even before, when she thought he was just wood, she was giving him that level of respect. And now she knows that he's not just wood. And so I think it's really interesting to have this moment of, like, true respect come through. And in kind, Paragon is letting her in. And I like to think that that's a really good judge of character on his part and that he's been through enough horrible people to where he can tell when people are being sincere and when there's respect right. given, but also and maybe he was within her body too. Like true. The feelings. Yeah. True. So. I guess. Yeah. So there's no, clearly no malice, but perhaps it's also a lonely little boy who just wants somebody near him with that, with that line at near the end, frightened, of how quickly he was moving towards friendship, but frightened as well of her potentially going away and never coming back. It's somebody who's talking to him, who's approaching him on a level and who said like, I know what's right and wrong and I don't care about what's profitable or not in front of him. Right. Right. When Mingsley and everybody else have just been throwing rocks, talking about chopping him up. She was there to take a stand and that's gotta feel good. Scary. Yes. Cause it doesn't happen very often, but Yeah. Doesn't want that to go away. And also that was even before she really got to talk to him. She was standing up for him without any gain. There was no reason for her to do that. She didn't know how much he could understand, you know, like there was no level of like, well, I have to do this to get in his good graces. It was something that she just did. And I think that's really good. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you have thoughts on the crew with Wintrow and, how crazy he is. <laughs> if Saw was a white. Yes. One of the originals. Anything about that, please let us know. Or if you have thoughts on Paragon and Amber's intentions here, please email us directly at isfitshappy at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, where it is fits happy on all three of those. And you can head to our YouTube. We have our episodes uploading there as well. It is fits happy. So, Thank you so much for joining us. Hope to see you guys next week. Yeah. Okay. This is normally my favorite part. But this week we have to talk about Malta. (laughs) (laughs) That's not very nice. I still enjoy hearing what you guys have to say about it. It's just, ugh, I hate Malta. I'm sorry. No spoiler there, (laughs) but it seems as though I am not alone in that view. No, no. Thankfully, 
Glad I'm not crazy. <laughs> we all can dislike her together. Um, we got a couple of really interesting messages about Malta and her character from our listeners, Jonas and Amir. Jonas let us know that when he was reading this, he always thought that on after the first time through, he thought that on a reread, he would be able to appreciate Malta more. And that did not happen. <laughs> no. So like he, he hated her more. And then on the third time through these books... He's like, maybe now. And nope, worse. <laughs> <laughs> Still bad. <laughs> it's it's such an interesting character because the read-throughs do kind of make her worse. I mean, it's not good the first time you read her, but knowing what's going to happen, knowing the depth of the wrongness of her decisions makes her hard yeah. to root for. No respect for family. Uh, Jonas talks about how the courtship with Rain is extremely painful to read. Not that Jonas particularly likes Rain, but he's decent enough character and a good guy. But, oh man, poor guy when Malta gets her claws into him. <laughs> <laughs> Just funny. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, the whole thing is bad. It's... She just doesn't care. He does spec Jonas does speculate like whether or not she actually does love her family members. Yeah. That like to him, it seems like maybe there is not love there. For me, she's a 12 year old. Like, yeah, it's not going to be apparent. <laughs> I do think there is love. Yeah, I do. Too. I do. I just think it's a weird. Maybe I just like to believe it, but I, yeah. I'll say it. I think she has a weird way of looking at love, though. I mean, I'm going to assume that she wasn't really raised by her mom. She was raised by a nanny. So there wasn't really a closeness to her parent and her dad is always away. And so maybe it's just a more distant love than what yeah. most people are used to. Jonas does say that maybe I'm being too hard on her, but Malta doesn't seem to have much love in her except for herself. So maybe he's being too hard. And right. then he says, even when you feel for her a lot more during her time with the satrap, it's mainly because he's even worse. <laughs> So. Also, I love that he said that you, at least he can understand Kyle. Like even Kyle, right, yeah. there's like there's something to relate to, right? Because he's fighting for something. Jonas says, yeah. Even if it's done poorly, at least there's like somewhat of a good. Like he's fighting for his family, but like with Malta, it's just literally all about her. It's selfishness. Yeah. And then Amir also had some comments about it, talking about how. Malta is just really well written that as a bad character, not because she's great or that, <laughs> that yeah, he's like, I do want to read this out. Cause it's a beautiful, wonderful line here. Hob didn't just create a random teenager. Malta is a carefully written problem, both wildly changing the balance in some funny ways. And to contrast what proper behavior of the Bingtown women, according to their society is, you know, like right. just, a perfect wrecking ball of garbage thrown at this chapter. And it really does give you different perspective of Bingtown because it's a wildly different lens than seeing it through Kefria or Ronica's eyes. Right. And I guess I should, I should amend. I said Amir does not like Malta. That's not necessarily true. Amir likes Malta, but because she's such a bad person. Yes. Like, <laughs> like because the character is so interesting, not because Malta is likable herself. Yeah. Loves... <laughs> Particularly, he likes this chapter because of its black comedy, like the horror yes. it actually presents. The reader is just having to go through this. Right. Well, I think what's so interesting about this chapter is it is kind of the lowest stakes horror going on. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's 
horrible and awful and there's like a lot to unpack, but at least it's kind of a break from the seriousness of Althea's life is going to be over because she's going to have to settle down or try to figure out how to live on a ship pretending to be a man for the rest of her life. And Kefria's life is over because her husband is a controlling jerk. And Ronica's life is over because she gave control of her life to a controlling misogynistic jerk. And Wintra's life is over. Everyone's (laughs) is bad. And then Maltz's is like... I want to be a woman. <laughs> this is how women dress. I definitely know money. I want people to talk about me. <laughs> uh, it is. It is really funny looking at it like that. It's just, I just cringe so hard reading that chapter. Like yeah. I can objectively. Yeah. Good chapter shows us perspective on different things. Good for pointing it out. Amir. Like you can also see Ronica through the lens of somebody else who is not Ronica and doubting herself. So you can see how she is a strong matriarch of the family and well respected by everybody. But I still don't like reading that chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it is very interesting to see the small amounts of good and none of it's about Malta. (laughs) Right. Yes. And, oh man, kind of um, speaking of the four gold or whatever, We have a comment on Facebook from Jonas talking about how, yeah, that's definitely not worth four gold. And I'm sure they love to have Malta as a customer, a repeat customer. Oh, yeah. But also that Jonas wasn't really thinking about that the first time through and didn't really stop to think about, oh, this might be a scam. So I don't know. It just kind of stood out to me. I'm like, she's just getting taken in. (laughs) Yep. There's no there's no bartering here. There's There's no no, she has no sense like (laughs) no vetting people. It's it's one of those things where it makes me think of like compare Althea and Malta and that Malta is everything people are saying Althea is. But Malta isn't being dismissed for it or like talked down about because of it. But because Malta is taking the traditional woman route, she is like what a traditional woman should be in this society. I'm using air quotes as I'm talking (laughs) because like what? Um, And Althea is not, she's not following tradition. And so like, it's really interesting to see the two of like, Althea actually is pretty competent, even if she is a little egotistical, um, but she isn't giving credit for that. And then Malta isn't ever talked poorly about for her lack of knowledge, ability to think through decisions, to know things. It's just kind of like a, well, of course she doesn't know things. She's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) at least from Kyle's end, not from her matriarchal family. (laughs) But yeah, so I I don't know. I think it's really interesting. Malta is an interesting character. It's not fair that I dislike her so much. It's just, oh, she's a great character. Yes, not <laughs> a good like I, person. Just like I say, Kenneth is a great character. Right. But uh, yeah, both Amir and Jonas both mention that change, right? The, they, it starts out as a horrible person, but Malta does grow up. Yeah. And does embark on a great character journey. Although Jonas is a little more skeptical of how great of a person she is at the end of it. We see like the amazing change that she goes through. Right. But... Jonas has to talk about a little bit of how she's still very cold. Yeah. Even when we like visit her later, she doesn't seem like a very warm and welcoming person and feels like all those good qualities are mostly rains that are rubbing off on her. Right. (laughs) But she's still very like 
she hasn't fallen too far or grown too much. Yeah, I think that's super fair. I think what's really interesting is the few glimpses we get of her in later series when she's more of an adult, an actual adult. She does still do things. She uses every tactic to her advantage to get what she wants. In the next trilogy about the Rainwilds, she uses her magic to try to convince the Bingtown or the That's for like a good thing though, I well, guess. Well, sure, but it's still something that she wants, right? right. Yeah. Like yeah. she is using any tactic available to her. And I th- I mean, I think it's an admirable skill to have to be able to know what you want and to be willing to do anything to get it. Yeah. It just can go awry and also I feel like needs a little bit of maturity to be able to weigh options correctly. Maybe not as yeah. Like, don't do things as selfishly, but, like, going after what you want wholeheartedly is not necessarily inherently bad. We'll have to pay attention to Malta's uh, change, her character change, see if she actually does or if it sticks kind of closer to what Jonas thinks. And it's, you know, she she changes, yes, she's a better person, but she's still cold and self-centered-ish. So we'll have to to see if that kind of plays true through the whole thing. Right. No, yeah, it's definitely... Something that we'll keep an eye on, but it was very good to hear from you guys, um, especially about our least favorite character. (laughs) So thank you for that. Um, And then we'll finish off our little chat with something a little bit more fun. Um, (laughs) I posed the question on episode 131. Yes. Episode 131 of who do you think would win in a fight? Kenneth or Fitz? There's a lot of stipulations here, of course, like, are they on a ship? Does Fitz have night eyes with them? Like, all these kinds of things. Right. Didn't really say anything about it. It was, it's very open-ended. I just. Very open-ended. In any, <laughs> in, in any situation, I, I don't know. I personally um, feel like grown-up Fitz, like, if Fitz and Kenneth are the same age fighting, Kenneth would probably win because when Fitz is in his 40s, he kind of lets things go a little bit and isn't as sharp. Although he is still able to kill like 40 people at the age of 60 in like one go. Maybe it wasn't 40. He's a berserker. I think he, I think Kenneth would enough. like stab him and end up killing him or quote unquote killing him. But Fitz would kill Kenneth first. But then Fitz still might heal from the true advanced healing that he got. True. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, but like last Ken- book fits. Yeah, I don't know. When he's sixty and he's like revenge fits. Yeah. Or are you talking about no, last? No, no, I mean like, like the Assassin's last trilogy Quest. we read. Okay, yeah. like twenty year old fits. Uh, he probably again. I don't think he would even get hurt if he's twenty year old versus forty year old Kenneth. Kenneth has that killer instinct. That's true. That and he has the luck. Whatever that magic yeah. is that gives him luck, and if it is magic. And there's Night Eyes as well. If Night Eyes is involved, Kenneth is dead. Yeah, but. Kenneth's done. <laughs> Although he does have Kenneth does have a wizard wood charm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh Jonas and Bastion kind of talk about this on Facebook a little bit. Basically commenting that and and saying that both of them are reluctant. Mm-hmm. They they both don't relish killing. Fitz obviously is very much more vocal about that. Right. Kenneth in his head is like, this is distasteful. It's beneath me. Like, we shouldn't have to do this, but I'll let my men indulge in the baser things. Right. Right. But still, they are both reluctant to do it. But Kenneth, oh, man. He, when he has to, he goes after those men on the stairs. 
Right. So and think, he's ruthless about it. He doesn't yeah. stop to think. He doesn't think about morals at all about it. It's me or them, and it's not going to be me. Yeah. Bastion also mentions that uh, if they were fighting on a ship, Kenneth would definitely take it, even with Night Eyes, because the only time that uh, fought on a ship otherwise was the raft crossing the river with True. Nick the Smuggler, and that was not a good experience. So <laughs> No. <laughs> I don't know. But we had a, a, one final comment on that. Um was from let me bring it up here becca brewing and becca's response to this was my favorite just simply saying kenneth fitz rarely wins a fight (laughs) honestly winning comment yeah sorry (laughs) sorry everybody else (laughs) oh yes that's true he wins by being in the hospital for a few months I, you know what? I, I think again to the final series, the final trilogy, Fitz wins a couple of those fights, but it is over the life of his child. So like, yeah, yeah. Different when, he's, when he's angry dad, he yeah. goes, he kind of hulks out yeah. and goes on him. <laughs> Berserks out. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So anyway, thank you guys so much for all your comments and thoughts. We love hearing them and we can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about this episode next week. 